The battle over immigration policy shifts from the Texas border to the Supreme Court. We're creating a system where a combination of states and courts can bring immigration policy to a dead halt. Texas challenges the Biden administration's policy on who gets deported. We get insight from experts on opposite sides of the case on the issues that will decide who wins. Tackling the state's foster care crisis, our investigators look at a renewed effort to keep children out of the system in the first place. And the people in charge of the power grid say they're ready for winter, but they won't rule out the chance of rolling blackouts. There is a scenario where under the most extreme conditions there could be not enough power. That's not acceptable. One state leader says lawmakers need to act. The solution he says Texas needs to keep the lights on. Produced from the Capitol in Austin and airing statewide, this is the award-winning State of Texas. Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm Josh Hinkle. The battle over immigration policy shifted from the border to the U.S. Supreme Court. On Tuesday, the high court heard oral arguments in a Texas case challenging how the Biden administration is enforcing immigration laws. The case argues the administration is wrongly limiting who can be deported. Anna Wernicke is in Washington to explain. Lawyers representing the state of Texas told the nine Supreme Court justices that the way the Biden administration enforces immigration laws puts the people of Texas in danger. A specific alien, Ruben Abanza, who specifically had a detainer placed on him. That detainer was removed, he was released, and then he was reapprehended for committing human trafficking. But the Biden administration is standing by Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas's 2021 memo, which says that DHS doesn't have the resources to apprehend and deport all of the more than 11 million non-citizens currently living in the U.S. And that means we wouldn't have the resources or ability to go after those individuals who are threats to public safety, national security, and border security. The administration's top Supreme Court lawyer says DHS lacks the needed funding and resources for universal enforcement. Conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh pushed back. There are never enough resources or almost never enough resources to detain every person who should be detained, arrest every person who should be arrested. But Justice Elena Kagan focused her questions on if Texas was entitled to bring the case forward in the first place. We're creating a system where a combination of states and courts can bring immigration policy to a dead halt. The court is expected to issue its ruling by the end of June. Anna Warnicke for State of Texas. We want to dig a little deeper. State Bureau reporter Jayla Washington spoke to two immigration experts. Each one brings perspective from opposite sides of this case. We start with Jayla's conversation with Chance Weldon, the director of litigation for the Texas Public Policy Foundation. That's a conservative policy group which supports the state's case against the Biden administration. This is one of those cases that people follow because they think it's about immigration, but really it's about um, who decides immigration policy, whether that's the legislative branch or the executive branch, and ultimately whether or not states like Texas have the right to get into court to challenge immigration policies that ultimately affect the state's bottom line. Those are the real major questions in this case. And those questions don't really have a whole lot to do with the, the underlying immigration policies at issue. There's an amicus brief that was actually filed in this case by UT law professor here in Austin, uh, basically saying this has less to do with the legal side of things and more to do with politics, saying that Texas 
typically is taking these cases to conservative judges who they know will support their argument. What is your response to that for people who feel like this is just more political than anything? Well, look, I mean, forum shopping, going to judges where you think you might get a favorable outcome, that's that's been present in litigation since there's been litigation. You know, uh, progressive states like California filed in California when they wanted to sue the Trump administration. And the state of Texas is gonna file in Texas whenever it wants to sue um, the Biden administration, I mean, for one thing, because that's where they're injured. They're injured in Texas because they are Texas. And yes, there are more conservative judges here, but um, it's sort of a good for the goose, good for the gander. Folks have been filing lawsuits in favorable jurisdictions since there's been litigation. Do you feel like something like this is necessary, though, in Texas when it comes to what we're seeing with just so many people coming across our border right now. I mean, record-breaking numbers. A lot of people are concerned with what's happening at our border right now. Well, I think the, the broader issue here is that the administration has taken an interpretation of the law that's contrary to the text. Uh, the, the statute that Congress passed said shall detain. And the administration here has said shall doesn't mean shall. There was a very interesting part of the argument today that went on for five minutes where they were going back and forth and saying, well, does shall mean shall? And the federal, the federal attorney in the case was saying, well, sometimes shall means shall and sometimes shall means may. Um, and I just don't think that's a reasonable way to look at the law. And I understand that there's a lot of, of policy reasons that the executive branch may want to be more lenient with the laws that they have. But at the end of the day, that's between Congress and the executive branch. Congress wrote a law that said shall, and shall means shall. For a different perspective, Jayla spoke with Aaron Reichlin Melnick. He's the policy director at the American Immigration Council. He gave insight into why his group is opposed to the state's lawsuit challenging the Biden administration's immigration policy. Well, this case has implications beyond just immigration law. Not only would a decision in Texas's favor lead to a significantly more arbitrary immigration enforcement system, it could also greenlight the ability of states to bring these kind of lawsuits against the federal government in the first place. Texas is arguing that it has a right to go to court anytime any government policy leads to more immigrants in its state, regardless of whether those immigrants are people here legally or otherwise. Just speaking from your experience, mm -hmm. you think that families who are here who have immigrated, who've been here a while, um, are a little on edge, kind of waiting to see what's going to happen and if that could change life as they know it right now? Yeah, um, we have a complicated immigration enforcement system that many people end up interacting with in their lives. And for those who are already here, they want some idea of certainty about whether or not the federal government is going to go after them if they end up on the wrong side of ICE's radar. Under the enforcement priorities, immigrants had a little bit more sense of certainty about whether or not they needed to fear ICE. But under a world in which the federal government can't set priorities, that creates a system where people don't have any real certainty about whether or not the government's gonna come after them. The reality is we live in a world of limited resources. ICE is never going to be able to arrest every undocumented immigrant in the country. At the current rate of deportations that existed even under the Trump administration, it would have taken ICE more than 40 years to arrest every undocumented immigrant. And that would be even if only if no more immigrants arrived during that time. So for undocumented immigrants who are already in the country, who are keeping their heads down and who are contributing, paying taxes and generally, uh, uh, generally following other laws, 
the Mayorkas enforcement priorities gave them some sense of security that they probably weren't going to be the targets of ICE. But in a world in which there are no enforcement priorities, that means much more arbitrary enforcement. ICE agents can pick and choose who they want to go after with no rhyme or reason or guidance from Washington, D.C. And that's just not a good way to run the system. My last question for you. There's a UT law professor. He filed an amicus brief. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but basically he yes. is saying this has more to do, this has less to do with Texas's legal rights and more to do with politics. Um, what's your take on that? You know, our system of checks and balances works best when people who are harmed by federal policies can go to a federal judge and get an order in their favor. But at the same time, we don't want the courthouse doors to be so wide open that anyone can go into court anytime and overturn wide swaths of executive action. In this case, the Supreme Court is going to have to figure out how to strike a balance. Do they preserve the rights of states to go to court when they believe federal policies are unlawful, or do they impose some limits on the ability of states to jump to courts simply because they disagree with how the federal government is running things? Leading up to this case, federal appeals courts had reached conflicting decisions over the administration's immigration policy. The federal appeals court in Cincinnati earlier overturned a district judge order that put the policy on hold in a lawsuit filed by Arizona, Ohio, and Montana. But in the separate suit filed by Texas and Louisiana, a federal judge in Texas ordered a nationwide halt to the guidance. The case went to the Supreme Court after a federal appellate panel in New Orleans declined to step in. Again, the high court's decision in this case is expected in June. The state foster care system can force mothers to make tough decisions. Do I lose my kid or do I go and get treatment for an illness that I know I need help with? Our investigators look at efforts to keep children out of the system in the first place and why the state finally has the money to make it happen. The risk of rolling blackouts in Texas leads to a new plan from the lieutenant governor, how he's pushing lawmakers to find ways to get more power plants in Texas. We've been following a crisis facing the state's foster care system the last two years as dozens of children spent time sleeping in state office buildings due to not enough space at treatment centers or in foster placements. One major focus has been getting resources to families sooner to keep kids from entering the system in the first place. Investigator Avery Travis has a closer look at one effort that's getting a new influx of money after sitting at a standstill for years. Children that are Cameron Home knows how traumatic it can be for a child when they're removed from their home, even when it's for their own safety. I personally am a former foster mother and I'm very aware of the system here in Texas. Texas has one of the highest rates of child removals due to alcohol or drug abuse by parents. National foster care data shows that's more than 60% of cases compared to the national average of just under 40%. It is a very vulnerable place and typically what we find is why a mother wouldn't get treatment is because she doesn't know what would happen to her children if she were to seek treatment. Do I lose my kid or do I go and get treatment for an illness that I know I need help with? It's a cycle Hernholm and her team at the Dallas-based Nexus Recovery Center are trying to break. By keeping families together while treating pregnant women and mothers recovering from addiction, they can keep kids out of the Child Protective Services system. 
So the idea here is let's get a tracking on it. In 2013 and again in 2019, lawmakers, including Charles Perry, directed the state to collect data on how many parents test positive for a controlled substance during a CPS investigation and how many children test positive for alcohol or a controlled substance at birth and how many children coming into the system are diagnosed with a chronic medical condition or a disability because of it. We should know and I think foster parents specifically have a right to know. But for nearly four years after that, the Department of Family and Protective Services said it didn't have the funding to make it happen. According to a memo released just earlier this month, the agency does track much of this information in the computer system housing children's case files. But it's in narrative form, so there was no way to pull it out to create this kind of report, other than manually reading every investigation. At the time, it said this would be too costly and time-consuming without additional funding. But then, just a few weeks later, after we started asking questions, the agency gave us this update. It says it found the money necessary to fix the system using existing state appropriations. Those updates are now scheduled for this fiscal year. The data that's out there is great, uh, but the more data we have access to, the more sophisticated that data is, the better we're able to be. Um, with the services that we provide. Jesse Boer with DePelton Children's Center says DFPS already made it easy for foster and adoption agencies such as theirs to access this type of information on a case-by-case -case basis. But having a wider view of the issue with aggregate data will help everyone know how to better target resources. Reach as many people who need our services as possible in the highest quality way, and data is what allows us to do that um, effectively and efficiently. Avery Travis for State of Texas. We'll follow that funding promise and any other updates regarding the foster care system from the upcoming legislative session. Leadership at DePelchin told us there are other measures DFPS currently tracks that are often used as potential indicators of substance use. For example, neglectful supervision. According to DFPS's most recent monthly report from October, neglectful supervision was found in more than 67% of CPS investigations in Texas. The people in charge of the Texas power grid say they're ready for winter, but they won't rule out the chance of rolling blackouts. The fact is the possibility exists. The calls out for needs to be met. We need to redesign the market to make sure there is enough generation and there's enough power. The long-term solution one state leader says Texas needs to keep the lights on. But first, a growing number of Texans waiting in jail for months, even years, to receive mental health care treatment. How proposals in the next session could help cut down those numbers. As the wait list for a state hospital bed in Texas hits new highs, mental health leaders remain dedicated to the widespread adoption of a strategy known as eliminate the wait. We first told you about this approach to reduce the backlog last year, as we revealed thousands of Texans still in need of mental competency restoration treatment, waiting in jail for a state hospital bed for months, even years. The eliminate the wait toolkit is meant to help train law enforcement, mental health providers, courts, and 
jails on ways to help drive down those numbers. But in the years since the plan launched, the waitlist record has only risen. At a forum on the topic in Austin this week, state leaders doubled down on the plan as a long-term strategy, encouraging counties in attendance to develop an action plan and task force for changes to the system. This could include diversion programs away from the justice system or even other options like jail-based or outpatient treatment to ease the burden on the state hospital system and more effectively get people the help they need faster. So if there is one thing that I would love everyone to walk away with today is really that if we increase appropriate diversion, we're going to reduce the forensic wait list. And this is really a simple math problem. Our team is tracking legislation on this topic ahead of the upcoming legislative session at the state capitol in January. One proposed measure would create a statewide office to focus specifically on the wait list. And another bill already filed aims to get court-ordered defendants transferred to a treatment facility within 21 days. We've been investigating this problem for several years. Catch up on our complete coverage all in one place. We have a link in this story in the Texas politics section of our website. Just scan the QR. QR code on your screen to take you there. Texas utility leaders say they feel confident the power grid is ready to withstand any winter weather headed our way thanks to changes made since the deadly February 2021 winter storm. The head of the Public Utility Commission and the new CEO of ERCOT say they believe the system is more prepared than ever following the release of two new reports outlining power availability. But when pressed about some of the most extreme scenarios outlined in the report, they acknowledged there is still the possibility of rolling blackouts. The basic arithmetic of adding and subtracting numbers doesn't account for the many reforms we've put in place like better coordination and communication. We're not trying to underplay it at all. It does reflect a very low probability scenario so we want to be clear on what it is. Both leaders say that's why ongoing efforts to redesign the entire electric market are a more long-term solution. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick is pushing for more natural gas power plants as part of the solution. Patrick laid out priorities for the next session at a Capitol News conference. He said the state needs to fund incentives to build natural gas power plants, saying they're more reliable than renewables like wind and solar power. Renewables are great, okay? They help keep our air clean, they help lower our rates, but you have to have enough dispatchable that you can count on. And then that's a luxury, the renewables. And one of the ways to do that is level the playing field. The Senate had a bill on that last time, it didn't quite make it. We have to level the playing field so that we attract investment into natural gas plants. Patrick listed electric grid reliability as his second most important issue for the session behind only property tax relief. A deadly hot air balloon crash in Central Texas sparks changes to federal regulations, but it took years and a push from Congress to get it done. How a new requirement for pilots could help prevent another tragedy. A new federal safety rule for commercial hot air balloon pilots is now in effect. It comes six years after a deadly crash in Central Texas sparked calls for change. The FAA now requires commercial hot air balloon pilots to hold medical certificates if they fly paying passengers. Anna Wernicke reports how Congress had to intervene to make this rule a reality. 
The FAA is enhancing its safety rules for balloon pilots and will now require commercial hot air balloon pilots to show they've passed an annual medical exam. Finally, finally, it's done. Texas Democratic Congressman Lloyd Doggett has worked on the issue since 2016, when 16 passengers died in a hot air balloon crash in his central Texas district. An NTSB investigation found the balloon pilot was, quote, as impaired as a drunk driver when he flew the balloon into a power line. But Doggett says even though Congress stepped in in 2018, the FAA took too long to update its regulations. And drug their heels as long as they could. In 2021, another hot air balloon crashed in Albuquerque, killing all five passengers. A toxicology report revealed that pilot had drugs in his system. Doggett says if the rule had been in place, it would have saved lives. By assuring that these pilots uh, are not uh, involved with substance abuse or other things that would impair their ability to fly. The new rule goes into effect in May of next year. Sam Parks, the director of operations of the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta, says pilots are already preparing. Everyone's starting to do some research as to how to go about getting one of these medical certificates and these examinations done. In Washington, I'm Anna Warnicky. As we wrap up this week, we want to tell you about a few new things we're offering to help you keep track of the big political stories in the state. Check out our new Texas Politics newsletter. It's a quick way to catch up on the top stories of the week. And now you can listen to State of Texas with our new weekly podcast. We have links online now. Look for them in the Texas Politics section of our website. Thank you again for joining us for State of Texas. I'm Josh Hinkle. We'll be back next week to bring you an in-depth look at Texas politics.